Well, good morning. Um, just in case some of you are wondering why I have my face all cut up. Um, that's because I'm not a very good skier. And uh, I told you that last time, but uh, literally went off a jump and landed on my face. So that would be those goggles I was wearing digging into my face. So um, there you go. That's, that's bonus material for you this morning. Uh, it is awesome to be here with you uh, as we start our first ever series. We're calling Gospel Centered. Uh, and recognize that for all of us, really, uh, as we start and you uh, are brave enough to venture out and go to a church plant, um, one of the things that we want to know is, is this a place that we can pour ourselves into? What kind of people are, are these people? And I'll just say w- once up front, uh, we want to be a church that is gospel-centered. And, and what that means, uh, we'll, we'll unpack for the next eight weeks, but what, what that does not mean is that we have it all together. I mean, we, we still have problems. One, the, the argument I'm going to be making over the next eight weeks is the gospel is good news for, for dead people, but it's good news for us as well that have been rescued and redeemed by the gospel because we are a mess. Uh, I'm a mess. Uh, I mean, I'm working on this last night trying to put this gospel-centered stuff together, and, and I'm losing my patience with my daughters. And I'm, it was not lost on me that um, I am still in need of gospel formation in my life. And I had to repent and, and say I'm sorry. And I do that far more often than I would want to do, uh, having been a Christian, having been pursuing God, and having been shaped by the gospel for 21 years now, um, I realize I still have just an amazing length to go forever and ever. But that's, that's okay. Because our, our standing before God isn't on us coming in here and, and, and dressing nice and, and praying the right prayers and giving our money, which we haven't ever done here yet. Uh, you can do it online, by the way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it, our standing before God is, is, is the gospel. It is Him and Him alone. And so we want to be a people that wrap our lives around that. And so that's where we're going over the next eight weeks or so. Uh, we want to be a, a saved, a shaped, and a sent people by the gospel. So we're, we're saved by the gospel, we're shaped by the gospel, and we will, uh, Lord willing, be sent by the gospel. And uh, just thinking about that, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of confusion in our day. What is the gospel? There's a lot of talk about being gospel-centered, but uh, in this first message, I want to just look at the very basic question, what is the gospel, from the passage that we just read. A.W. Tozer, a theologian from a few years ago, used to say this. He said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You say, well, that's just preacher talk right there. Come on, uh, that can't be true. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the reason he said that is because if Whatever you think is ultimate reality, whatever is the, the, the point and source and purpose of life, whatever comes to mind in that moment is going to shape uh, the way you interact with God. So we want to be thinking rightly so we're not just interacting with a figment of our imagination, but it's also going to shape how we view ourselves and it's going to shape how we view 
others. So it's going to affect our relationships. So it gets distorted in this world. It gets twisted and mixed. And so we, we, we don't think of God rightly. Therefore, we don't think of ourselves rightly. And um, we certainly don't want anyone else to know who we really are. And so we don't treat others rightly. It just begins to avalanche down. And so we want to think rightly about God. We want to think rightly about the gospel. On the one hand, the gospel is, is very simple. Uh, a three-year-old can understand. On the other hand, it is a, a vast ocean that none of us can, can dive down and, and, and reach the bottom with. The gospel is amazing. Uh, like I said, little kids can understand it. I, I thought about this this morning. Uh, when I, when I, we were pastoring in Okinawa, Japan, and uh, uh, my daughter Zoe was about three years old, and and we would share the gospel with her, and I would tuck her in at night. And I remember one night I was telling her about um, God, and I was trying to communicate the uh, attributes of God, the, uh, in this case, the omnipresence of Jesus. And uh, she was asking questions, and, and I was like, yeah. she said, well, is God in this room? I said, yeah. Is, is Jesus in my closet? <laughs> I said, Yeah. Is Jesus in our house, the whole house? And I said, yeah. And then I could see her gears turning, and she, her eyes got bright, and she said, he's a big boy. <laughs> like, that's right. He's a big boy. God is a big boy. You can get that at the ba- most basic level, and yet um, somehow, someway, well, we'll see in this passage that there are many things that will, will bring us down, will distract us and, and, and lead us away from that reality. But he's a big boy. Maybe you saw on our Redemption Parker Facebook page, and if you haven't liked it, we'd ask you to like it, but uh, this quote I put up there says by Dave Harvey, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in Scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. So as long as the Lord allows Redemption Parker to have its doors open in some way, shape, or form, as we gather and, and sing the gospel and as we taste the gospel in communion and as I open the word and, and preach the gospel in some way, shape, or form, every passage will work its way to either preparation for the gospel, participation in the gospel, or presentation of the gospel. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. We see this pattern in the New Testament, and Paul does this in Ephesians as well. Just a couple notes as we dive into our passage again. Uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. Now, this is a church that Paul helped start. It's a church that he pastored for many years. It's a church that had an amazing amazing leadership team. I mean, when the Apostle Paul is your pastor, and then he hands it over to Timothy, and later John will come and, and help be an elder there. I mean, that's a, that's a heavy hitter kind of church. That's a church I want to go to, thank you very much. Uh, but what, what we see Paul doing in Ephesians, and he does it to the Corinthians church, and he, and he does it in the Galatians church, is he reminds the church of the gospel. He reminds the church that the gospel matters for us. It shapes us. It sends us. And, and he calls us to this, this renouncing of our old ways. Remember who you were so that you can live in who you are now. And we have to be reminded of that constantly. We, we have to hear the gospel. That's why we gather together and celebrate corporately because it's not about us as individuals. It's God has redeemed a people for himself. And we tell each other gospel. 
And when we sin against each other, my hope is that we would... Okay, let me pause. My hope isn't that we would sin against each other, but my hope is that we would be uh, close enough in community that by, by natural order of life, there would be times where when we sin against each other, the gospel would be preached to each other, forgiveness would be extended, and we would remember the cross of Christ, and we would be shaped a little bit more by that. That's my hope. The gospel, euangelion is the Greek word. You all know what it probably means, or many of you know. Any, any guesses? What does gospel mean? Good news. There, I heard it. It just means good news. I was thinking about news. Have you ever had really, really good news or really, really bad news radically affect your life, change the course of your life? If it's on a spectrum, the, the, the really, really bad news and the really, really good news, they will both radically change our lives. It'll, it'll do it on an individual level. When you get the results from the doctor and they said the results aren't good, you don't have long to live. That, to, to live, to live, that radically changes your life. It happens on a national level. If I, if I say September 11th, 2001, immediately we all know that was bad news. That was a bad news day. I remember where I was at, as you do if you were old enough. I was still laying in bed. It was convocation at the seminary, and it was time to go into to school, and I was trying to get the last 20 minutes of sleep, and my wife came in and said, hey, a plane is, has crashed into the World Trade Center, and I was like, okay, that's unfortunate. I, I'm guessing a Cessna or something like that, and then she came back 10 minutes later, and you know the story. And in that moment when she told me another plane had hit, I knew something had fundamentally changed about the world. The bad news had changed the world, and and then going on and, and being in military ministry and talking with guys and saying, why did you join the military? And they say, I joined on the afternoon of September 11, 2001. And guys would get deployed and families would get separated. People would get injured and people would die because of that bad news. On the other end, good news will also radically change our lives. Uh, when, you, when you ask her to marry you and she says yes, you know in that moment life is never going to be the same. And later on when she says, I'm pregnant, you hopefully know in that moment life will never be the same. <coughs> Good news and bad news radically changes us. The only option that is not an option in the face of the news on the extremes is to remain indifferent, to just kind of be like, mm, okay, whatever. Well, what Paul is going to do in this passage for us, <clears throat> just a second, he's going to tell us the world's worst news and the world's best news. See, the good news of the gospel is only as good as the bad news is bad. So sometimes we, we if, it was, if it was like this, if you came out of the doctor's office and the doctor came up to you and said, hey, good news you no longer have cancer. You'd be like, what? <laughs> well, that, that is good news, but let's get back to the cancer part. What are you talking about? And sometimes when we present the gospel, we, we only want to get to the good news, but the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. <clears throat> so we say, hey, God loves you. And you're like, of course he does. I'm lovely, and that's kind of God's job. <laughs> and so if the good news is only a little bit good, then you only need a little bit of God. But we're going to see the good, that this news is the most radical news, both good and bad, that the world has ever heard. 
Let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's going to remind the church of who they were and where they were at. He's going to start with the bad news. And again, there's no room for indifference with this kind of news. It says, and you were. Okay, English majors here, were, that's, that's past tense, right? Okay, so uh, you were. He's reminding the church of who they were. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, that's a curious way to put that, right? Like, you want to find zombies in the Bible? Ephesians 2, 1. Okay, the walking dead. You were dead in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So God created the universe. He created it good, created man in his image. And in <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3, we see that man has rebelled. And the punishment for that was death. Both physical and spiritual death entered into the world in that moment, but immediately spiritual death entered into the world. So that they had, Adam and Eve had breath in their lungs, but spiritually they were separated from their Creator. And they were spiritually dead. And that virus of sin was passed from generation to generation to generation like a bad vi computer virus. And so that all of us are dead. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but here's the deal. You were dead. It wasn't that you needed a little bit of mending. It wasn't that you just needed to kind of gather here and, and you know, maybe outweigh, have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and, and, and have a cosmic scale that maybe got put God in your debt. See, when we have a distorted view of God, we'll have a distorted life. And so we do that. We do that with religion. We do that with pursuing the things of the world. That's the next thing. He says you were following the course of the world. Now, the world, if you go out there, they will say, basically, we're spiritually neutral. Basically, uh, everyone's on their own path. Everyone's on their own journey. There's different mount ways up the mountain to God. And everyone eventually is just going to kind of uh, be sucked up into heaven. That's, that's what's going to happen. And, but that's not the story of the Bible. In fact, Jesus himself puts it this way. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. He's saying the, the, the course of the world is, is not one of spiritual neutrality. The course of the world is headlong away from God on a wide path saying, we don't want anything to do with you. We'll go our own way, thank you very much. And Jesus says, many are on that path. It's just the pursuing of from one pleasure to the next and the next, and in the end, finding it all empty. So the world leads us astray. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, and this is the reality that there are spiritual forces at work. In Ephesians chapter 6, he'll, he'll begin to unpack that even more. But again, in our day, uh, someone might be thinking, are you really going to go there in an age of scientific enlightenment? But the Bible is very clear that there is a real spiritual battle going on. I had a friend who grew up as a missionary kid in Papua New Guinea. He's a marine helicopter pilot now. But he said, you know, uh, as we were missionaries there, uh, we would see physical manifestations of the demonic realm all the time. Like, it was just a natural part of leading the, the local people astray. And he said, but you know what? I, I think and it would certainly affirm that, that those same realities are present in the West. But, God, but Satan just uses whatever's easiest to lead, and to lead astray people from God. And in our time, it's, 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 and in our place, it's very simple. It's just comfort, safety, security, materialism. 
But there's a spiritual force in all those things leading you astray. And then he goes on and he says, following the prince of the power of the the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind. It says, all of us in thought, word, and deed have rebelled against God. In some way, shape, or form. We've said, we'll do it our way. We don't want your lordship over us. And so we carry out the passions. This is the story of every person born. And so so Paul gives the, the conclusion there. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, not a popular message in today's day and age. What do you mean we are by nature children of wrath? That, that the very first breath we take, we, we have inherited the sin of our first father, Adam, and we are by nature standing under the justified wrath of God against sinful humanity. He says that's who you were. You were dead spiritually. You were led astray by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is the story of everyone before Christ comes into This is bad news. It doesn't get any worse than that. Again, it's not that we just needed to wipe, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and and just try harder. There was no trying. Dead people don't try anything, right? Go to the cemetery today and say, try to do anything. Say anything, do anything. You'll get no response because that's what dead people do. It's bad news. It's the worst news possible. This is what was true of us apart from Christ. Now, God being God, who can do whatever he wants, could have just ended it there and said, well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for coming out to Redemption Parker. Have a good day, dead people. But then the next two words are perhaps the the best words in all of the Bible. But God. But God. I love that. (laughs) Because uh, it it doesn't say, but you, you finally figured it out. You finally got some religion. You finally got a morally right. You finally were smart enough to realize that God was alive and well. No, it was, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He kind of gets ahead of himself. If you, if you notice in your Bible, verse 4 through 7 is one, one sentence. Paul loves to do this. He loves these run-on sentences. Have you ever talked to maybe a little kid or someone's really excited to tell you a story, and they're telling you the story, but they're so excited, they want to get to the end before the story. So this is what Paul is saying. Uh, uh, you have been raised with Christ. Uh, you have been saved by grace. I'll get back to that. And, and so on. You've been lifted up, raised with him, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He just kind of goes on and on. And he says, listen to this good news, but God, he's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead romans will tell us even when we were still sinners even when we were enemies of god even when we uh, shoved our, our our noses up at god and turned from him god rescues and god redeems this is god who saves and so it is the gospel that we want to celebrate he even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus now 
So notice the contrast here. You were dead, and now he's made you alive. You were walking, uh, following the prince of the power of the air, and now he's taken you, and he's seated you up in some way spiritually in the heavenly places. That's where your spirit is, in a sense, right now, with Christ, who is at the right hand of God. So what can touch you there? What's going to go up to the right hand of God and say, I'm going to take Mark back down here. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to bring him in. I'm going to separate him from your love. Nothing can take you out of that place. Nothing can take you out of that position. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. And so this should fuel our passion. This should fuel our courage. This, this should be like, what, what can touch us? I mean, the Apostle Paul who would be tortured for his faith, would say stuff like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light and momentary affliction, affliction, he calls it light and momentary. I love that. Anyone been beaten for their faith lately? Anyone given a death sentence? Not in this room, no. But across the planet right now, yes. And it's only the gospel, only the best news in the world that can trump that news. I was looking at my notes for this message, and I gave this message the last time in uh, 2012. And it was, I was invited to come up. We were on Okinawa. I was invited to come up to one of our sister ministries to work with the Marines up in the northern part of the island. And they said, we want you to come up and teach, Mark. And the, the couple that had, uh, were leading that ministry were part of our ministry, and they got out of the military, and they were uh, basically... Uh, running this ministry up there. And I said, yeah, I can do that. I was like, do you want me to preach on anything in particular? And they said, no, just whatever, whatever's on your heart. And I said, well, I'm just going to preach the gospel then. I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. And they're like, that's great. And so I'm getting up there, and about a day or two, a day before I was to go up there, I got a call from the husband, from Mike. Mike said, hey, um, I just want to let you know that we've got some bad news. I said, okay, what, what's up? said, well, Lisa, sorry, it's going to be my beard. Sorry, that's annoying. Okay, uh, Lisa um, was in the doctor all day. She's uh, had uh, uh, scans. Um, her, she's full of tumors. I said, okay, um, so what, what does that mean? Well, this is really bad news. It means we have to pack up and, and leave Okinawa immediately. We have to move back to New Mexico and get her in treatment as soon as possible. I said, okay. Do you want me to still come up? And they're like, yeah, we want you to come up. And so I was like, okay, do you want me to still do the same passage? They're like, yeah, we'll do that. And, and I, I think that um, God ordained that time and this passage for her. She, she loved the Lord. She, she knew the Lord very well. But the gospel in that moment was better news than the news that she did not have long to live. I brought with me on that trip up to the Hanson Christian Center uh, uh, another friend of mine named Drew. Uh, Drew came up and, and he was praying with Lisa and, and about a week later after that, Drew comes to me and says, I got bad news. I've got cancer. I've got to get off the island as soon as possible. And he moved to California. Months later, I would stand in front of people and do Lisa's funeral. A few months later after that, I'd stand in front of people and do Drew's funeral. 
The bad news radically changed their lives, cut their lives short, but the good news was their hope for all of eternity. Nothing could touch them. They were seated with Christ in the heavenly realm, and they knew it. This news is the best news. Nothing can hit us. Nothing can take us down. Nothing can bring us down in that moment. Because look what Paul says in verse 7. So that, here's the purpose. Here's why God does all this. Last time we were together, we said God does everything for his glory and for our joy. And in verse 7, he says, So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I don't know if you caught that there, but here's the deal. Um, the Queen of England, she's worth $4 billion. Now, if she came to any one of us and said, hey, I want to invite you into my inheritance, you'd be like, that's pretty cool. Prince Mark, okay, I'll take that. And, uh, you know, $4 billion would take quite a while to get through. But a day would come where that $4 billion would be gone. I know it sounds crazy, but eventually that's a limited inheritance. And what Paul is saying is, as he's rescued and redeemed us, as he's brought us into his presence, he says, there will never be a day in the coming ages upon ages upon ages where we will have enough of God, where we won't be stunned and shocked. We will never be in heaven and just be like, well, I, I think we've seen all this place. We'll never be like, hey, I, I think I finally get God and I understand the grace and mercy. No, it is the immeasurable riches of his grace and mercy. And every day our joy will be renewed and it will soar higher than the day before for 10,000 and 10 million years and so on and so forth. It is immeasurable. It's amazing. See, in our world, the, the joy gets uh, eventually just kind of loses its luster. So you go on vacation to San Diego, and it's amazing, and, and the ocean is awesome, and all the locals don't even look at the ocean. They've been bored with it. That won't happen in eternity. We will never get, be bored with the presence and majesty of, of eternity with Christ as he shows us each day the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is good news. This news is better than cancer. It, it, it trumps whatever can, can take you down. It trumps death and torture. It trumps uh, only living in this body for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, this news will go on and resound forever and ever and ever. And then he says this. If you're going to memorize one verse of the Bible this week, memorize Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. For by grace, grace is the operative word of the Christian life. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. This grace uh, tells us that there's nothing that we did to earn it or deserve it. And Paul is very clear. This is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. And he says, just in case you, you, you miss up, because our hearts kind of tend to, to lean towards kind of earning our stuff and saying, God, look how good I am and, and, and kind of owe me something, God. He just wants to be very clear in verse 9. Not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. That word workmanship means it can be translated his artwork or his poetry. Think about that. You, as a rescued and redeemed saint, are a piece of art that God wants to display to the world. With all your cracks and all your, your, your uh, stumbling and falling, he says you are God's poetry to the world. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God would say, uh, I'm going to rescue and redeem you, and I've prepared beforehand all the good works you could walk in, not works that will earn you anything for me, but that your life would have meaning and purpose, and you can display my glory and grace in the world. See, it's not, it's not just that we needed to, the goal is not to make nice moral people. The goal is resurrection. It's redemption. Or to quote C.S. Lewis, he says this, we must not suppose that if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. See, religion tries to make nice people. God makes dead people alive in him. Um, when I was in Okinawa, I did a series based on uh, what, something Paul says in, in the book of Philippians about false teachers. Almost every, every book of the New Testament, uh, they're confronting false teaching in some way, shape, or form. So I said, okay, let's just look at some false teaching in the world. And so one of the, the groups I, I talked about was, was a group that's known for being very nice people. <laughs> and, and by the way, we should be nice people. I'm not saying be jerks. Uh, but that doesn't save us or rescue or redeem us. And so uh, the, the big wig on island from this particular group came to me and they said, why, why, are you, why are you so harsh on us? Why are you saying this? We're, we're just like you. We're Christians too. And I said, no, uh, you twist and distort the gospel. And it really isn't a gospel that you preach. You're trying to make nice people. But that's not the gospel. They said, we believe in grace. I said, no, you don't believe in grace as the Bible talks about grace. He said, well, let me help you understand, Mark. Imagine I have a, a winning lottery ticket, and uh, I'm, I want to give this ticket to you, but I want you to just, you know, pay me five or ten dollars. You know, you get the million dollars, but you just, you just do your part, just a little bit, five or ten dollars. I said, that's it. You don't get it. We are spiritually bankrupt. There's not a penny in the world that we can offer for that lottery ticket. There's nothing we can do. We were dead in our sins and transgressions. There's no good work even to give you a few bucks for that. You missed the gospel. Uh, Darren Patrick tweeted, speaking about lottery, uh, a few years ago that the largest, win the largest lottery ever was won. And, and Darren Patrick, he tweeted, he said, uh, Dear person who won the lottery, you still can't buy what you need most. That's true on so many levels, but that's true on this level as well. There's nothing we can do for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So we are to be shaped by this. In the next several weeks, we'll talk about what does that look like? How do, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? We're to be saved by the gospel, shaped by the gospel, sent by the gospel. If this news is really as bad as it says it is, and if this news is really as good as it says it is, it should radically change us. There should be a fervency in our prayer for lost people. We should uh, be going with them to the, the, the one thing that can rescue and redeem them, the gospel of grace. And then if it's as good as it said it is, man, that should fuel our passion, it should fuel our worship, it should fuel our going and it should fuel our repentance when we sin against each other. At this time, I want us to just conclude, not, not with a, 
a sermon, but with coming to the gospel once again. We've sung the gospel. You've heard the gospel. But we want to come to this table once again and remember the gospel this way.